that if we have enough people. Okay, now let's look at our scripture that can be found on the screen or in the back of the bulletin as we continue our way through the book of John. This is right after uh, Jesus has encountered the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, and he has ministered to her, and uh, his disciples come into the picture, and Jesus has a dialogue with them. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, could Come, see a man who told me everything, all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed with them there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. The word of the Lord. Well, it's been called the greatest generation I'm speaking of the people who were born from 1901 to 1927. You've heard of them, perhaps. They were coined the greatest generation by Tom Brokaw in his book. They grew up in the Great Depression, and they went on to fight and win World War II. They came from many diverse walks of life, but one thing united them, that they were fighting for a cause bigger than themselves, and many sacrificed them for that cause. Perhaps they are called the greatest generation because they lived for a vision that was bigger than themselves. I bring up this generation because it is true also that we were made for a vision greater than ourselves, greater even than the vision of the greatest generation. We were made for God and God's vision. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, first above your life, above everything, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Jesus also challenged us by saying, if anyone would come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. In this passage, Jesus is showing us that we are made for a greater vision than merely living for ourselves. You see, True satisfaction comes when we die to ourselves and live to the will of God. Jesus is going to show us how to live this life, a greater life, uh, a vision than we would live on our own in three different ways in this passage. Number one, he shows us that there's a new food to eat. We have a new food to eat. Number two, we have a new harvest 
to reap. There's a new harvest for us to reap. And finally, there's a new joy to seek. A new food to eat, a new harvest to reap, a new joy to seek. Because true satisfaction comes when we die to ourselves and live to the will of God. Well, let's examine this first point. Jesus says that we have a new food to eat. Jesus has interacted with this Samaritan woman. He has presented the gospel to her, and it has moved her heart in such a way that she's left her water jug. She's run back to the town to tell people that this could be the Christ. And the disciples come into the picture, and they were urging him, verse 31, saying, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus says in verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Jesus is not talking about physical food. He's talking about something that sustains him that's far deeper, something that is filling up his soul. The disciples aren't getting it. In verse 33, they ask, has anyone brought him something to eat? But Jesus utters these words in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What a powerful statement. My food is to do the will of God, the one who sent me and to accomplish his work. To do God's will, Jesus is saying, is like food. Now, we know some things about food, don't we? You probably consumed some of it before you came to the service today. Food is essential. It's the most fundamental thing in life. If you don't have food, you're in great trouble. Indeed, we have to eat three times a day to sustain our bodies. Eating is not optional. It's like breathing. And Jesus is saying doing the will of God is like breathing. Jesus lived his life constantly doing the will of God. That's why he was the most satisfied human to ever walk the planet. In John 8, 29, he says, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Food is essential. But food is also satisfying. Jesus is saying, my heart is satisfied from doing the will of God. In Psalm 47, verse 7, which is a messianic psalm, meaning a psalm that's written about Jesus Christ, it says, here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. Jesus has a desire to do God's will. It's like food to him, and it satisfies his soul. Food is satisfying. Food is essential. And food provides power. It's food that drives us. When we think about what empowered Jesus' life to give him the ability to live the way that he lived, it was doing the will of God. That's what empowered Jesus. Think about all the powerful things that Jesus did. Raising people from the dead. Healing the sick and the blind. And the lame. Think of all the powerful things that Jesus said, like loving your neighbor as yourself and going and preaching the gospel. Where was he getting the power to do these things? It was from doing the will of God. Indeed, what gave him the strength to go to the cross and endure the suffering and the torture? 
It was doing the will of God. We, in the same way, are made in the image of Christ. We have his DNA if in us, if you will, the same programming. We were made to do God's will. It is supposed to be our food. But what went wrong? You'll remember back in the garden when Satan came to the original man and woman and said, you can do your own will. Indeed, you'll be more satisfied if you eat from this tree. And the woman and the man, they looked and they saw that the fruit was pleasing. And they decided, I'm going to follow my own will instead of God's, that that will give me satisfaction and pleasure and power. And the world was thrust into darkness. And the result is that we are twisted inward. We try to find joy doing our own will. But the reality is we were not designed to occupy the throne in the center of our lives. When we put ourselves first in place of God, our appetite for things becomes insatiable. It's never enough. We have to have more possessions. We have to have more fame and adulation. This, my friends, is why we are miserable. When we live for ourselves, we're empty. But Jesus constantly lived for the will of God. He never succumbed to temptation, did he? Remember in the garden when Satan came to him and said, tell these stones to become bread. In other words, choose your own will. Get your physical sustenance from these stones instead of from trusting God. But Jesus never wavered. When Satan said to throw yourself down from the temple, Jesus said no. When Satan offered all the kingdoms of the world, if he would worship him, Jesus said no. Because his food is doing the will of God. All that is to say that you and I will not be satisfied until we surrender ourselves to the will of God. See, we want Jesus and we want the world. But Jesus says we must choose. Matthew 6.24 puts it this way. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. We're going to have to serve someone. It's built into our DNA. The question is who? I liken it to this menu that we have. There's a menu of our life. And we're ordering on it every single day, indeed, every single moment. But there are only two choices on this menu, my will or God's will. When I come upon a situation, how will I treat that annoying person at my work? Is it going to be my will or is it going to be God's will? How am I going to deal with this issue with my kids? Will I order God's will? Or will I order mine? How will I deal with that ongoing temptation in my life? It's either my will or God's. And what we order, my friends, has consequences. See, life is a series of decisions we have made in the day-to-day -day affairs of our lives. Like Jesus, we need food. And that food is to do the will of God. And if and when you choose to do God's will, 
you will experience several things. One, you will experience a satisfying life. There is peace when your will is synchronized with the will of the God of the universe. For we were designed to be conformed to his will. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, dear brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Indeed, this is your spiritual act of worship. You and I will find peace when we get up on the altar and we say to God, I am a living sacrifice. I am yours. Do with me what you will. When we do God's will, we will experience a satisfying life. We will also experience a powerful life. See, when you decide to do God's will, all of his power and all of his resources are unlocked. Because the Lord wants to do his own will. God's will, done in God's way, will not lack God's resources. If you want to live a powerful life, an inexplicable life, submit yourself to the will of God. Say yes to God. Answer the quest, answer, give your answer before you even know the question. Because doing God's will is satisfying, it's powerful. And finally, it's essential. The Apostle Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I do live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, when Christ calls a person, he bids him to come and die. To die to his will. And so our mantra must be more of him and less of us, because we will find our life when we lose it. Living for Christ is not optional. I've spoken of a new food to eat. Now I want to speak about a new harvest to reap. My second point. Jesus said in verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So we know the text here. And we need to understand the context. What work is it that Jesus has been called to accomplish? Look at verse 35. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for the harvest. Jesus is talking about the ingathering of his people. That he has been given an assignment to do the will of God by presenting the gospel so that people will believe and be saved. Jesus is on a rescue mission that has been initiated by his father because he does not want a rebellious people, humanity, to perish. So he has sent his son to announce the favor of God, to tell them that there is now is the time for repentance and reconciliation. It's Jesus' death on the cross that is opened a door that we can walk through. That our righteousness can be counted on the merits of Christ's righteousness and not our own. What Jesus is saying is that the time is now. The crop is ready. In fact, that's what's going on with this woman at the well, isn't it? And this town, the gospel is going forth. 
and lives are being changed as Jesus does his Father's will to accomplish his work. Already, verse 36, the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. Jesus is saying that the groundwork has been laid for the gospel to go forth. All of the work of the Old Testament prophets and the writers, of John the Baptist and his disciples, of Jesus coming has all laid the groundwork. The story of history is the story of preparation for the gospel. And Jesus utters these words to the disciples and to us in verse 38. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. See, we are the reapers. We have a new harvest to reap. Jesus is sending each one of us to accomplish his work. He said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The harvest fields are ripe all around us for people to hear and believe the gospel. Now, you may be saying that doesn't happen anymore. People don't hear and believe the gospel. It's like, it's like hitting stone trying to share Christ with people. Well, it happened for me. I remember as an 18-year-old when someone shared the gospel with me, and I heard, and I turned, and I believed. And my entire life has changed because of that encounter with that person. The woman I married the children and how I've raised them, the occupation that I have, the very fact that I'm standing in front of you right now preaching the gospel is the result of this person sharing their faith with me. You see, to do his will is to be accomplishing his work. And his work is to share and to be an ambassador for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18 puts it this way. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, you and me, this ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us, there it is again, this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. God has given you and I a ministry of reconciliation. You are a minister of the gospel. Now, you may have a ministry in the church. You may play up here on the band. You may be part of the hospitality. You may be part of our men's ministry. But that's a secondary ministry. Your primary ministry is the ministry of reconciling people to Jesus Christ. He is entrusted this mission to us. We are the hands and feet and mouth of Jesus Christ. He has come to each one of us and said, I will make you a fisher of men and women. And he's given us a bigger vision that we could ever have on our own. 
And so it goes on, 2 Corinthians 5, 16, for now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. See, my friends, there's no such thing as an ordinary human being. It was C.S. Lewis that put it this way. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals who we work with, joke with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. And God has given us the tremendous honor and task of furthering and accomplishing his work. So how do we do it? I think there are two ways in which we do it. Number one, we love one another. We love one another. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, love one another. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. By this, all the world will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. See, the church is a beacon that's blinking out into the world. It's on display, if you will, for the world. And what is on display is the love that we have for one another. People are watching how we treat one another. So how are we doing? Are you letting yourself come close enough to other people so that you can love and be loved? Are you a participant? Are you a spectator? See, that's why we have community groups and the men's retreat and women's studies and lighthouse groups. The opportunity for us to connect with one another, to love one another and be loved by one another. See how the world treats each other is conditionally, but we are to treat one another unconditionally. Because when we do, the gospel goes forth in a wave that we can't understand as people see love manifest in the world. We are to love one another. And secondly, we are to live out our faith. It's true that your life speaks louder than your words. Christianity is caught as much as it's taught. People are watching you as you leave this church and go out into the world. And when you are living your life doing the will of God, Day to day, moment by moment, you're living a powerful, inexplicable life. See, the world loves conditionally, but God is calling us to love unconditionally, to enter into people's lives and to prioritize them and really care for them. I appreciate these words by a uh, Christian, a priest named Henry Nowen. And Henry Nouwen said this, more and more, the desire grows in me simply to walk around, greet people, enter their homes, sit on their doorsteps, play ball, throw water, and be known as someone who wants to live with them. It is a privilege to have the time to practice this simple ministry of presence. Still, it is not as simple as it seems. My own desire to be useful, to do something significant, or to be part of some impressive project is so strong that soon my time is taken up by meetings, conferences, 
study groups, and workshops that prevent me from walking the streets. It is difficult not to have plans, not to organize people around an urgent cause, and not to feel that you are working directly for social progress. But I wonder more and more if the first thing shouldn't be to know people by name, to eat and drink with them, to listen to their stories and tell your own, and to let them know with words, handshakes, and hugs that you do not simply like them, but truly love them. What if we did that? What if we started loving people like that, coming alongside our neighbors, our coworkers, families, and friends, and letting them know from the way that we live that we do not simply like them, but that we love them. See, there's power in here with the love that we have for one another, but there's power out there during the week as you take the love of Christ into your particular context. How we love one another matters. My friends, we're facing one of the greatest challenges in the church today. And it's the rise of what I call hatred in the church. Somehow it's become okay to hate or disparage people who are different from us, particularly if their political identity or their sexual identity is different than us. The world has seeped into the church. And for some Christians, their politics has become more their identity than their faith. This cannot be. My friends, there is only one kingdom, and it is not the United States of America. I love my country, don't get me wrong. But if we are more interested in advancing America than advancing the kingdom, we have missed it. America has become an idol. But Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The earmarks of a Christian are unconditional love and forgiveness. And to be a Christian requires you to love and respect people you may not agree with, whether they be Democrat or Republican, gay, lesbian, or transsexual. We must love others as ourselves. It's not when you change, then I will love you. It's I'm going to love you even if you don't change. Let this church be known as a church who loves, particularly those who are different than us. So examine your heart. What needs to change? What do I need to repent of? What are you reading and watching? And is it encouraging you to have a kingdom mindset or a mindset of the world? If so, turn it off, because we are about the Lord's business. True satisfaction comes when we die to ourselves and live to the will of God. We have a new food to eat, doing his will, a new harvest to reap, seeking to the Great Commission, and finally we have a new joy to seek. Notice verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Where do we find joy? 
We find joy in two places. One, as we give our life away, as Christ found joy in doing the will of God the Father. The pathway to joy is paved with the stones of obedience. But we also find joy as the kingdom advances and people come to faith. Notice that it's a joint joy with God. That it says that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. God the sower and us the reaper rejoicing. Because God has great joy when people come to faith. Did you know that? Indeed, Luke 15, 7 says, I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. We get to experience God's joy as people come to faith. And we get to be participants in the process. There is no greater joy than seeing a person become a Christian for the first time. And so are you seeking this joy? God wants to use you and me. If you seek this joy, if you ask God, use me in this harvest of people, you will find it. Pray to God, use me to win people to Jesus Christ. We are called to be a part of the greatest rescue mission in the history of the world. So take your calling and your commission seriously and enter into your father's joy. For true satisfaction comes when we die to ourselves and live to the will of God. We have a new food to eat, a new harvest to reap, and a new joy to seek. By God's grace, let us pursue these things with all of our hearts, for we are called to a greater vision than we could ever have on our own. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this new food to eat, to do your will, for we were made to do your will. And when we do so, we are synchronized with your heart. And you've given us a new harvest to reap, to be participants with you on the greatest rescue mission in the history of the world, sharing the gospel with a lost generation. God, help us to embark on this task with the same passion and fervor as Jesus Christ did. And use us, use this church to reach the world. We want to know the true satisfaction and joy that comes when the harvest comes into the barns and your smile is evident. And so we give ourselves to you and we love you and we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen and amen. Now we worship through offering. Our offering plates are in the foyer. We no longer pass them. They're available outside